Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 124 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 13th of July 2014, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 1. And the Bible readings are taken from Jude 1-4 to and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20-21. to Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. I'd like to be opening your Bibles in preparation for our scripture reading. First of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. While you hold your finger there, turn to the book of Jude, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. All right, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word as we begin our reading in Jude and verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul finishes out this letter to Timothy with these last two verses of the book, chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Father, we are so privileged and so grateful to be in your house again today. Lord, we're so privileged and grateful to have your word before us that you have preserved for us down through the years. So blessed to know that you, through the power of the Spirit, lives and dwells within us and are right here in our midst this day. Now, Father, as we take this next bit of time that we have together, we do pray from the depths of our heart, Lord, that you would speak that which needs to be spoken here today through thy most unworthy servant. Lord, not for any man's glory or honor, but for your glory, for your honor alone. We would give you the praise and thanks for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We pick back up with these verses today in our series that we began some time ago and have been away from for a few months now on contending for that faith. We're reminded from our reading there in the book of Jude that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which, notice, was once delivered unto the saints, was once for all delivered unto unto the saints, and we hold it and have it right here with us today. 
Why? Because there are certain men unawares, sneakily. They've slipped in through the side door. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, he said, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God. And of course, in that same vein of thought, as Paul was writing to young Timothy and trying to prepare him for the ministry that was still before him, when he came to the end of that letter, he gave him both an encouragement and a warning. Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding, he said, profane and vain babblings, those things that are both worthless and even contrary and dangerous. Those profane and vain babblings, and he says, and particularly for our thoughts this morning, and oppositions of science falsely so-called, keeping that which has been given to our trust and avoiding that science, that knowledge that man has that is falsely called because it's, it's not real knowledge because it's not the knowledge of God. They call it knowledge. They call it science. But he said, avoid those things those oppositions to that which you've been entrusted with that's falsely called science. He says, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. And I say we'll find as we approach our subject today, there are many that profess to be God's children, that profess to be of the same faith, that profess to be Christians, and yet, they have erred concerning this faith that was once for all delivered to us that we're to, to contend for, that we are to keep because they have not avoided those profane and vain babblings, those oppositions of science that ought not to even be called science. We find that in these next few sermons, we'll find out how many when we get to the end. But we're really going to be addressing two questions that are undoubtedly at some time and usually many times in a person's life in every individual's mind. Where did we come from? How did all of this begin, if you would? And secondly, where are we going? How will it all Finish. We're going to begin today with this first question of where we came from, of how it all really began. And of course, as we do that, we have, I guess, two words that are usually tossed out there. That's evolution or creation. And we're going to begin as we begin to look at this because certainly, the world's view, which one time would have been predominantly on the creation side, even if they disagreed on a lot of other things. The worldview is certainly now far to the other side on this evolution side. And you see, there is a huge difference, and it is explicitly 
what the Word of God is speaking to us about. First of all, in contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to you and I and to avoid those profane and vain babblings, those oppositions that are falsely called science. We find that it is not going to be my purpose or even my ability to go into great depth and detail on a lot of these things. There are literally thousands upon thousands of articles and books that have been written on the subject. And even today, there are a number of Christian organizations that focus their entire resources on this debate between evolution and creation. They undoubtedly can do a much better job on the subject of all the details than I can. I would even commend to you to go to some of their websites and read those books and read those articles and understand what the debate is all about. God willing, I think it's scheduled for Saturday, the 11th of October, we plan on having Christian Ministries International doing a presentation for us here at the church. It's been set up for some months, so we look forward to that. And I hope that you mark it in your calendar, and that you can make sure to be here. Matter of fact, I contacted them this week. We want to get all the final details and everything, and we'll go ahead and get some leaflets made up. We'll get it on the website, but they'll do a wonderful job of explaining some of these things. Now, I'm going to tell you up front you know, the simple bottom line is that in order to deal with this, I've got to deal with two sides of something. And in some ways, today's message may not seem the most spiritual of topics, but I say that it's, it is extremely important, and I hope that you'll grasp and understand just how important that it is to begin to really realize how very, very, very dangerous. Why that it totally undermines not only the doctrine of creation, but many fundamental, foundational doctrines of the Bible. If we do not accept the Genesis account of Scripture as God gave it to us. That's what's been entrusted to us. That's what God delivered to us once for all. That's God's word upon the matter. We live in a day when I can promise you that you'll be tempted as many Christians have in the past. You'll be tempted if you're not careful to shy away and think, well, it's not really important what they believe about this. It's only important what they believe about Jesus. Well, folks, I'm not saying this will save you. But I'm saying even many of those professed, even many of those that are saved have erred from the faith. They've erred from the truth. And it's vital that God has somebody that's going to contend for the faith that's not going to be influenced by those things because I can assure you what they are calling science they will try to make you feel belittled that you're uneducated, that you're ignorant, that you're believing in a bunch of mystical stuff. 
Well, if you believe that this book is ignorant and what God has to say is ignorant and that it doesn't matter and that what man says is of greater value than what God says, then I'm afraid you've already erred from that point and you need to be coming back. And I want to say to you that what we're going to be looking at over these next few sermons is not just creation, but the Genesis account. You see, I quote, and I'm going, to not, I'm going to give you a lot of quotes this morning because I'm going to move through this quickly. I'm going to throw it out there. And most of what I am quoting from is either taken from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is a well-respected encyclopedia of man's knowledge, is taken from specific websites of science and how things work by those that are supposed to know. It's even taken from the actual quotes of what is in the GCSE requirements of our children that are in the education systems today. One science website says the theory of evolution is one of the best-known scientific theories around. Try to make it through a day without using or hearing the word evolution, and you'll see just how widespread the theory is. Evolution is fascinating because it attempts to answer one of the most basic human questions. Where did life and human beings come from? The theory of evolution proposes that life and humans arose through a natural process. Now, thank God, a very large number of people do not believe this, which is something that keeps evolution in the forefront and in the news often. They go on to say that billions of years ago, according to the theory of evolution, chemicals randomly organized themselves into a self-replicating molecule. This spark of life was the seed of every living thing we see today as well as those we no longer see, like dinosaurs. That simplest life form, through the process of mutation and natural selection, has been shaped into every living species on the planet. That's the way that the scientists define evolution. They say, that that's science, that that is knowledge. That's what the word science means. Encyclopedia Britannica says the founder of the modern-day theory of evolution was Charles Darwin, the son and grandson of physicians. He was first enrolled as a medical student at the University of Edinburgh. After two years, he left Edinburgh to study at the University of Cambridge because his parents saw that he wasn't really going to make it as a doctor. That wasn't his thing. So they decided that the best thing for him to be was a clergyman, to be a preacher. And so he went to Cambridge to study that. I've read all kinds of things. Some say that he was not an exceptional student and others say that he finished pretty good in his class, but one thing for sure is that he became very, very interested in natural history. 
On December 27th, the year 1831, just a few months after he had graduated from Cambridge, he sailed as a naturalist aboard the HMS Beagle. He went around this round-the-world trip that lasted until 1836, five years at sea on the HMS Beagle, and of course, stopping and disembarking at many places along the way to collect natural specimens. It was through that trip that Darwin formulated this theory of evolution that is now accepted as science, but it was like 20 years later, 1937 to 39, after he, or 1859, that he, that he actually published it. When he returned, he began to put all of this down, and he did publish that famous book on the origin of the species 20 years later in 1859. And of course, probably no single book has probably had more influence on Western society. Now, I'm saying to you that I am trying to show you sincerely that, yes, the world calls this science, but I'm saying to you that I want us to grasp and understand that it is science falsely so-called. Evolution is defined as a theory in biology postulating that various types of plants, animals, and other living things on earth have their origin in other, listen, pre-existing types and that the distinguishable differences are due to modifications in successive generations. Listen, the theory of evolution is one of the fundamental keystones of modern biological theory. So the world themselves, the people of science, the people that, that, that hold to all this, that proclaim all of this, they say that that theory is fundamental, that is foundational to all of biological theory that is out there. Did you notice how that they describe that? Living things on earth have their origin in other pre-existing types. Okay, so where did those pre-existing types come from? They're saying that everything that has life came from something else, but that it's been mutated, that it has been changed over the years, and that everything that we see, every living thing, originally came from one living thing that pre-existed. In order for the principles of mutation and natural selection, which is what the theory of evolution is all about to work, there have to already be living things for them to work on. Life must exist before it can start diversifying. That's what evolution is all about. Life had to come from somewhere. And, of course, the theory of evolution came up with an answer to that, that it arose spontaneously, just on its own, out of these inert chemicals and just happened to be on planet Earth some four billion years ago. 
I quote you from one of the science websites. Speaking in general terms, life can only have come from one of two possible places. Listen. One, spontaneous creation, which says that random chemical processes created the first living cell. Evolution can only begin once there is a living cell. So they're saying that there was this spontaneous creation that it created itself spontaneously at some moment in time, about four billion years ago. The second, they say, spontaneous creation or supernatural creation. They even alliterated it for me, amen. God or some other supernatural power created the first living cell. And of course, there are some that literally, I know, I know to some it may sound far-fetched, but I'm, I'm sure you've heard it before. There's some that think that we came from aliens. I mean, literally, that some other life form from some other planet, from somewhere else out there, or some asteroid that happened to hit Earth that had those living cells on it, that somehow this spontaneous thing that happened on Earth four billion years ago was a result of other life out there in the universe somewhere that either got here by aliens or some asteroid that had some of their life cells on it. Do you know what science themselves says? It still had to be spontaneous creation or supernatural creation. They say it doesn't really matter if aliens or meteorites brought the first living cell to Earth because the aliens would have had to come into existence through either spontaneous creation or supernatural creation at some point. Something had to create the first alien cells if that's where we came from. You see, even what I'm trying to say, we'll look at some other things. I'm saying that even forgetting about young earth, old earth, forgetting about whether it's a few thousand or many billions of years of old, the truth is, is that science themselves that have come up with this science called evolution, even they, they can't come up with a real answer because everything they believe still had to start somewhere either on its own or from somebody that, or something that created it. You see, in the end, it is impossible not to believe in creation. Whatever views you hold, the question is whether you believe in the creator. Because whatever you hold, you hold the most, you take some of the most avid of holders, Richard Dawkins and these that, that stand so firmly against anything that had to do with a creator in any sense. What I'm saying is that in some way, they still have to believe in some kind of creation. Their science of evolution doesn't work without it because it has to have a living cell that came from somewhere. Either it just came into existence here or it came from somewhere else. Now, take that spontaneous creation. You see... If you're going to go to spontaneous creation, then you've got to go, okay, we're talking about, they believe this happened about 4 billion years ago here on planet Earth. And, and you'll find, folks, listen, I don't, you can't take too religious a lot of the figures because it's just like, you know, you see all these things, you know, I mean, these, these figures here can, can, can vary by, you know, you know, half a million years just, just on when it, when it began here on Earth, three and a half million, four million. But life can't exist unless it has somewhere to exist. 
As you begin to look at all the different sources, you find there that, well, that has an even bigger because there the science will say anywhere from 10 billion in some places to 20 billion in others, depending on where you look, depending on your exact theory that you hold to. But I guess some of the most accepted came into being about 1920. Most of you have heard of the Hubble telescope, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it was Mr. Hubble that came up with this eye, and it's actually called by him or after him, Hubble's Law. Interpreted in the simplest fashion, the Hubble Law implies that 13.8 billion years ago, all of the matter in the universe was closely packed together in this incredibly dense state and that everything then went bang. Everything exploded. Everything started moving out at this phenomenal speed. The signature of the explosion being written eventually in the galaxies of stars that formed out the expanding debris. In other words, they're saying that they know this happened because of what they see there. Now, this is what is taught to our children in the school system today. This is straight from the GCSC requirements. The foremost theory of the origin of the universe is the Big Bang Theory. It suggests that the universe began several billion years ago in an explosion that caused it to expand and to continue expanding. Some of the evidence of the Big Bang comes from studying the red shift of light received from the distant galaxies. Telescopes allow us to observe the universe. The Big Bang, it says, scientists have gathered a lot of evidence and information, a lot of evidence and information about the universe. They have used their observations to develop a theory called the Big Bang. The theory states that originally... All the matter in the universe was concentrated into a single, incredibly tiny point. This began to enlarge rapidly in a hot explosion and is still expanding today. This explosion is called the Big Bang and happened 13.7 billion years ago. You see, you realize something when you begin to look. The fact is, is that even... The Big Bang Theory does not address the beginning, the creation of the universe. Again, forget about whether it's a few thousand or a few billion. Forget about young earth versus old earth for a minute. Everything that that entails. Still, it's merely a theory of the evolution of how the universe got to be what it is today. It doesn't even begin to address where that original matter came from or anything prior to the Big Bang. You can read over and over. They openly say it doesn't go beyond that. They can't see beyond that. Even there, they're having to begin with something that was already there, that was created somehow. So we got this Big Bang that came from this Incredibly tiny and dense concentration of matter, of course, that nobody knows where it came from. With all this matter suddenly 
and nobody knows why, expanding for somewhere around 10 billion years until about four and a half billion years ago. Some of it finally cooled down enough after 10 billion years. It finally cooled down enough to be able to form our planet Earth. And that's how it got here. And of course, everything's still expanding and there are many of those same scientists that still believe it's a process that's going to re repeat itself and that in approximately 70 billion years, it's all going to happen again. So we're going to all blow up, we're all going to be gone and life is going to begin to start all over again because that's the process. Interesting idea, isn't it? Spontaneous creation. Encyclopedia speaks of the origin of genetic variation it says life originated about three and a half billion years ago in the form of primordial organisms that were relatively simple and very small. All living things have evolved from these lowly beginnings. You go back to say life can be traced to fossils more than 3.4 billion years ago and thus only slightly younger than Earth, which gravitationally created into a planet about four and a half billion years ago. But this life as a whole, more than 99.9% of species that have ever lived are extinct. Okay, now that means they exist no longer. 99.9%, even they're saying, it's not there for them to look at. It's gone. Okay, now that that's so clear, how did that life begin three and a half million years ago or three and a half billion years ago? Well, one website says the origin of life or prebiotic evolution means the, there's that word again, spontaneous generation of life. And I know you've heard it. In this primordial soup, containing small organic molecules in salt water. <laughs> Such a process is generally believed not to be possible or successful in today's ecosystems unless undertaken in controlled laboratory settings. In other words, they're saying all this happened, but it couldn't possibly happen today with our system being what it is today, even though there's nothing left to know how it happened then unless you've got a controlled laboratory. But notice their next statement, the latter awaits experimental proof. They're telling you science. They're telling you it could be done. They're telling you it's the way it was done, and yet they themselves have never been able to prove it. It's only because they say it could be done. Earth was able to support life only after the planet had cooled enough for a rocky crust to solidify. Listen, once that happened, water vapor from volcanoes condensed in the atmosphere fell as rain and collected on the Earth's surface. Besides water vapor, volcanoes also produce gases rich in the basic ingredients of life, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. Toxic gases such as ammonia and methane were common. At this point, Earth's early atmosphere consisted entirely of these volcanic gases, there was no free oxygen. In the primordial soup, they still call it, of the early seas, 
organic molecules concentrated, formed more complex molecules, and became simple cells. I want to give you one other quote because I really like the way that, that they described it. It said, through the first half of the 20th century, this came from a college website, by the way, University Place of Knowledge and Learning. Through the first half of the 20th century, studies from astronomy and geology suggested that the very early Earth was a dramatically different place than it is today. It was a hotter and nastier place, heated by a warmer sun and a warmer interior. This suggests more violent weather with huge storms and lots of lightning. The atmosphere had no or almost no oxygen, so no ozone layer to absorb the sun's ultraviolet rays. Simple organic materials, which are common in the space dust and debris from the earth form, that the earth formed from, would have filled the oceans with a kind of, I love this description, with a kind of brownish gunk full of potential building blocks of life. There was no life in any of those wild things going on, and yet suddenly there's this brownish gunk that's full of it. This is known as primordial soup, and this concept of the early earth led to something called the heterotroph hypothesis. Heterotrophs require their complex fuel molecules already made, unlike audiotrophs. I hope that makes it clear as mud or maybe as clear as brownish gunk or primordial soup. I don't know. You see, we're answering the question, how did it all begin? This is what science tells us. There is a reason. Do you know why, even though it's accepted as fact, do you know why something is called a theory such as the theory of evolution? Because while it's a theory... It hasn't been proven. It can still be disproven, but it's going to remain a theory until it's proven. Science itself tells us all of this, and yet there's no way of proving any of it. They say it happened, and they say that they could make it happen in a laboratory, but they've never done it. I believe with all of my heart if the world wants to think me ignorant, they're probably not far wrong anyway, but that's fine. If I have to choose between man's knowledge and God's knowledge, man's science or God's science, this wasn't written, wasn't written as a science book, folks. But the book of Genesis is there for a reason. That's just a brief, and, and, and you know, we, we really can't begin to understand, and I, and I hope you can be here. I hope you can grasp because I, I want to tell you, we don't even begin, you know, so many times as Christians, we think it doesn't really matter. I hope you can grasp just how much it really does matter. I want you to understand. I'd like for you to Look at just a couple of passages. And, and first of all, I wasn't supposed to get to this one yet, but Psalm 11, verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, 
what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what hope do we have? What can we do? You see, because Jesus also speaking on those foundations, we'll come back to this later because it's supposed to be a few pages on further in my notes here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I'd like you to turn to the very first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And our time is about gone, so I just want to read this passage. You see, what we just looked at, I tried to sum up as briefly as I could. There's only two choices. It all was created either by spontaneous creation, if you want to take the things that I've shared with you already, or by supernatural creation. There is no other choice. It had to come from somewhere, even if it created itself, or if God created it. With all of their theories, with all of their science, they still can't get it without creation happening one way or the other. Doing it itself or someone doing it. I'm going to look at this and we're going to be looking at these passages. Genesis chapter 1, what about the supernatural creation? Well, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, there are many that say, well, that Hebrew word that's translated day there, that God did this the first day, it doesn't necessarily mean a 24-hour day. Well, I'd sure like to say this, that you live in a pretty strange place if the evening and the morning don't make the first day, okay? If you can go for a 1,000 or a million or a billion years with one setting of the sun, Wow. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. 
the gathering together of the waters called he seas, God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after the kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven." to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God said, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. To every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air, to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. I give you this in closing and we'll come back, God willing, next week. I have no idea of knowing if the story is factual I know I've seen it recorded in a number of places, reputable places. Sir Isaac Newton 
renowned as one of the greatest minds, greatest scientists that ever lived. And he is described in most places as a devout, though unorthodox, Christian. He did have some strange views, but he had a strong, strong belief in God. He had some trouble with the Trinity, but he didn't have any trouble with a God that created everything. One of the greatest scientific minds of history. I've told this story before here, but I'll read it to you once again. Sir Isaac Newton had an accomplished artisan fashion for him, a small-scale model of our solar system, which was, was to be put in a room in Newton's home when it was completed. The assignment was finished and installed on a large table. The workman had done a very commendable job simulating not only the various sizes of the planets and their relative proximities, but also so constructing the model that everything rotated and orbited. You just had to simply turn a crank. It was an interesting, even fascinating work, and as you can imagine, particularly to anyone schooled in the sciences. A scientist friend of Newton's came by for a visit. Seeing the model, he was naturally intrigued and proceeded to examine it with undisguised admiration for the high quality of the workmanship. Oh, my. What an exquisite thing this is, Newton's friend exclaimed. Who made it? Sir Isaac Newton, paying very little attention to him, just mumbled, nobody. Stopping his inspection, the visitor turned and said, oh, evidently you did not understand my question. I asked, who made this? Newton, enjoying himself immensely, no doubt, replied in a still more serious tone, nobody. What you see just happened to assume the form it now has. You must think I'm a fool, the visitor said heatedly. Of course somebody made it, and he's a genius, and I would like to know who he is. Newton then spoke to his friend in a polite yet firm way. This thing is but a puny imitation of a much grander system whose laws you know. And I am not able to convince you that this mere toy is without a designer and maker. Yet you profess to believe that the great original from which this design is taken has come into being without either designer or maker. Now tell me by what, what sort of reasoning do you reach such an incongruous conclusion? It's amazing today that it's really only the most complex thing that man can ever look at and study, life. Life. I mean, there's a lot of amazing things in this world. Nothing compared to life. And yet all of man's science, those vain babblings, huh? they call science, but it's not really science, not really knowledge. It's the most complex of everything that exists that they somehow try to believe came into existence by itself. It just, boom, it just 
happened. They wouldn't believe it about anything else in the world. It had to have a designer. It had to have a maker. And yet the most complex that nothing else compares to. Folks, I want to say to you that it's not only that science that's not really science at all that God's Word is talking about. It is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous science that is undermining the very foundations of God's Word. And that's why I said, yes, we will look at creation, but you know, I only got through one of my two points of my introduction, and then I've got 12 points in the main sermon, so I'm not going to dwell on a lot of it. The purpose of this is not to prove to you creation. The purpose of this is to prove to you fundamentally and foundationally the Genesis account. It's not just life, but it's the beginning of many things with God, the foundation of many doctrines that we hold true in the book of beginnings. And over these next weeks, I want us to grasp and understand how important that it is because if we take away that foundation, there are a lot of things that come crumbling down with it. Father, we thank you today for the time that we have together. And Lord, we know that there's much around us. Lord, we're not in even any sort of way trying to belittle the importance of knowledge. But, Father, it's that which is called knowledge, that is called science, that's really not. That's just the profane and vain babblings of man. Lord, that goes contrary to the one source of true knowledge that we have in all the world that cannot fail us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to grasp and understand the importance of this the Genesis account that you give us, the book of beginnings. You've told us not only where we came from, where everything around us came from, where many of the things that we hold dear had their beginnings, their foundation. We pray that you would, Lord, just be with each one here today and help us, even as we've sang many of the songs already, help us to be grateful, help us to praise you, help us to thank you. Help us to give you the glory, the honor, the praise that's due to you, for you have created all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.